Well, today is Halloween, and most people in our culture are focused right now on costumes and candy and all things creepy. But for us as Christians, and particularly Protestant Christians, and maybe I might even say Protestant Christians who have come from maybe a Lutheran background or a Presbyterian background or maybe another kind of Reformed church, today you know is what? Reformation Day. And it's the day that we celebrate the event that sparked the Reformation, which was perhaps the most pivotal, pivotal moment in church history since Christ and the apostles and the day the church started at Pentecost. On October 31st, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the door of his church in Wittenberg. And this list of grievances against the church in his day, mainly the selling of indulgences to find the, to, or to fund the building of cathedrals, there were men going around telling people that you know if they were to give to this uh, you know offering uh, that they could you know take some years off of either their time in purgatory or off a loved one's time in purgatory, and so this incensed um, Martin Luther. In fact, November first. You know, is All Saints Day, and uh, I, re- I just recently read, I thought it was fascinating that uh, back in 1517, on November 1st, Luther knew that a whole new batch of relics was going to show up in his hometown of Wittenberg, and all the people were going to go and uh, observe these things and do their little genuflect, and they were going to, again, take some years off of their time in purgatory by observing these relics of Christ, and so all this just stirred his heart. And he wrote out these grievances and nailed them to the door, which was kind of like the, the place when you wanted to make a, a statement. This was how you went viral uh, in those days, was you nailed something to your church door. Um, a lot different today, right? You, don't, you post something on the internet now, but he nailed it to his, the, 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 the door of his church, and it stirred up all sorts of controversy and resulted in him being excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church and also declared an outlaw by the, Roman, by the Holy Roman Empire. And because Luther's friends loved him so much, they kidnapped him before anybody else could because there was a, a warrant out for his arrest. There was a bounty on his head. And so they kidnapped him and they hid him away inside the Wartburg Castle where he would be put to good use rather than just waste away in some prison And there he translated the Bible into German, which was the language of the common people, so that everyone could know and learn the word of God for themselves. In those days, the the average churchgoer did not have a copy of the scriptures. The only person that had a copy of the scripture was the priest, and the only person who ever read the Bible, read the Bible was the priest in church. And so there was no way for those believers in those days or those churchgoers in those days to be good Bereans who could compare what the priest was saying with what the Bible taught. And so Luther and the other reformers wanted to get the word of God into the hands of the people because sadly in those days the truth of the Bible had become buried under all sorts of man-made rituals and traditions And popes and church councils were viewed as the final authority rather than the scriptures. But the worst thing was that what the Bible teaches about how a person is saved from sin, death, and hell had been completely corrupted. 
People were being taught that they had to earn their way to heaven by keeping the sacraments and living a life of good works. And so God used Luther to recover the biblical gospel that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he and the other reformers like John Calvin in, in uh, Geneva and Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich and, and John Knox in Scotland, they summarized the essential truths of the gospel using five Latin phrases in order to clearly distinguish themselves and their beliefs from the error of the Roman Catholic Church. We know them today as the five what? The five solas. And they were the driving force behind the Reformation. What are they? Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, and Soli Deo Gloria. Sola, or solus, is the Latin word for only or alone. So what those expressions mean is that we believe in Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and for the glory of God alone. I thought about taking some time this morning to remind you of what those five solos are all about, but I've already done that um, in past sermons as recently as 2017 when, if you remember, churches and organizations um, around the world celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It was an exciting year back in 2017. So this morning, what I thought I would do is something a little different to commemorate Reformation Day. And I want to talk about another Latin phrase. I guess whenever you think about the Reformation, you got it, Latin comes in there somewhere, right? Um, a Latin phrase that, that um, I think is equally powerful and profound to our everyday lives as Christians. Now, I realize most of you don't care much about Latin. And you probably know very little Latin unless you're part of a classical conversations group. Right? All you kids, I've got your attention now. Okay, oh, pastor's speaking my language because I'm learning Latin. Well, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Latin phrase semper fidelis or semper fi, which means what? Always faithful. Yeah, the Marines in here, they, they'll never forget that, right? That's the motto of the Marine Corps. You've probably also heard the, the Latin phrase carpe diem, which means what? Seize the day. And it's used to urge someone to make the most of the, of the present moment and give no thought to the future. Just go for it now. But how many of you have ever heard of the Latin phrase, quorum Deo? Anybody familiar with that expression, quorum Deo? Okay, not enough hands are going up. If you know that word, you should be like really proud of it. Like, yeah, I know that word. Um, you may have seen churches or schools with Coram Deo in their name, Coram Deo Church or Coram Deo Academy. Well, this phrase is found in the Vulgate, which is the 4th century Latin translation of the Bible, written mainly by Jerome, and it means in the presence of God or before the face of God. Before the presence of God, or in the presence of God, or before the face of God. And it actually appears in Psalm 56.13 in the Vulgate, and it says this, Psalm 56.13, For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life, that I may quorum 
Deo in the light of life. Now, from a theological perspective, this phrase arguably serves as the underlying principle for living the Christian life. I was first introduced to this phrase by R.C. Sproul through listening to his daily radio show, Renewing Your Mind, and reading his monthly devotional magazine, Table Talk, in which the application section uh, on every day's reading uh, had the little subtitle, Coram Deo. In other words, in light of what I just read, what am I going to do with it? How, how does it apply to my life? How can I put this into practice today in the way I live? Let me read for you how R.C. Sproul explained what Coram Deo means. And this is from a a little blog post uh, that he wrote several years ago before he went to be with the Lord. This is what he said, and I quote. He said, recently a friend asked me in all earnestness, what's the big idea of the Christian life? He was interested in the overarching ultimate goal of the Christian life. To answer his questions, I fell back on the theologian's prerogative and gave him a Latin term, which was very typical if you ever uh, sat under R.C. Sproul's ministry. He was always bringing in some Latin term and writing it on his chalkboard, right, and explaining it and unpacking it. He said, I said, the big idea of the Christian life is Coram Deo. Coram Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. And this is how he defines it. He says, to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. Let me read that again. To live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. He went on, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing and wherever we're doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. He said to live all of life, Coram Deo, is to live a life of integrity. It's a life of wholeness. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp the big idea. This is the old uh, sacred-secular, secular-sacred argument. Is there really two categories? Are there certain things that we could put in the category of sacred, like what we're doing right now? Sitting in church, listening to the preaching of God's word, singing songs, uh, maybe reading our Bible, having our quiet time, um, serving uh, in our community or serving in some ministry. These are all kind of sacred things, sharing the gospel. But then the majority of our life is, is we live in the secular, making breakfast, making lunch, thinking about you ladies, changing diapers, going to work, punching the clock, um, playing sports or doing your hobby, going hunting or fishing or whatever you like to do. These are more secular, or are they? And the reformers were so helpful in this regard, and they basically said, there's no distinction between the sacred and secular, and what you do for a living is no more, uh, is just as sacred as what I do for a living, in other words. Some would say, well, my job 
fits into the sacred category. Your job, you're in the oil industry or you're whatever, you're a housewife. Oh, that's, that's a secular category. No, it's all sacred. And I've shared this with you before. There's a reason why the best watches in the world typically come, come from Switzerland. Why is that? Have you ever asked the question? Why, why do all the finest um, timepieces, they don't even call them watches, they call them timepieces, right? Why do they come from Switzerland? Well, because that's where John Calvin led the Reformation and taught the people sitting in the pews of his church that was formerly a, a, a Catholic um, uh, cathedral with all sorts of paintings everywhere. And when he became the pastor of that church, his first request was to paint over all the gaudy uh, pictures that were all over the ceiling so that people couldn't just kind of sit around and do this all, all service, but they were riveted to the preaching of God's word. In other words, he knew that we didn't come to church to, to gawk at all the saints and, you know, of old and, you know, Mary over here and Jesus over here. No, we came to study the scriptures. So he wanted to take away the distraction and, and get the church back focused on what it should be focused on. But what he taught his members, his church members, was that whatever you do, you're to do it solely day of glory for the glory of God. And so those of you that are going off to the watch factory tomorrow to build a watch, you build that watch to the glory of God. And so when you have that mindset that you're going to work to serve the Lord and to glorify God, you do your best work, amen? And so those guys developed uh, a philosophy of making watches that is, is uh, legendary even to this day. He says the big idea, back to R.C. Sproul, is that all of life is religious or none of life is religious, in other words, all of life is sacred or none of life is sacred. To divide life between the religious and the non-religious is itself a sacrilege. This means that if a person fulfills his or her vocation as a steelmaker, attorney, or homemaker, quorum deo, then that person is acting every bit as religiously, or you could say spiritually, as a soul-winged evangelist who fulfills his vocation. In other words, ladies, you changing your newborn's diaper is just as spiritual as me preaching this sermon. Integrity is found where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It's a pattern that functions the same basic way in, ch in church and out of church. In other words, you're the same wherever you are. You don't think one way or act one way or talk one way when you're at church and then you think another way or act a certain way or a different way or talk a different way uh, when you're out of church. I have a buddy who, when he was a youth pastor, was always trying to think of creative ways to illustrate biblical truths for the students. Kyle does an outstanding job of this kind of, as he calls it, bending the, the branch down so that the young people can grab the fruit and appreciate the teaching of Scripture. And so the analogy the guy used to describe integrity was the difference between a TV dinner and, and, and a chicken pot pie. And some of you are like, what's a TV dinner? I, those are a thing of the past, right? Well, we used to eat these things. I don't know why, but we did. And uh, you can still get them in the store today. And, and so you, you pull them out of, the, out of the box on this tray, and there's all these different, what? Compartments. And you've got the mystery meat, whatever it was there. And then you had, you know, the vegetable, and then you had the mashed potatoes or whatever, and then you had the dessert. And, and so you could take a bite of that, that, that um, TV dinner and every bite could be different depending on what compartment you were in. 
But a chicken pot pie, right? We still eat those things because they're good, right? It's all the same. It's just one big thing. And every bite you take is exactly the same. You're digging into the same thing. And so that's a great example of, of, of integrity that, right, if we have integrity, we're just, we're, there's only one compartment in our life. It's just, it's all sacred. It's all spiritual. It's all religion, religious. Rather than a little compartment, we've got a little church compartment. We've got our school compartment. We've got our work compartment. We've got our home compartment. We've got our uh, deer, uh, deer stand compartment, right? No, it's all one compartment. So he's saying it's a pattern that functions the same in church and out of church. It is a life that is open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. Coram Deo, before the face of God, that's the big idea. Next to this idea, our other goals and ambitions become mere trifles. Classic Archie's role. So in short, what we're saying here is that all of life has to do with God. All of life has to do with God, not just the stuff at church. All of life has to do with God. Why? Because everything in our lives is done before God and should be done for God. Everything in life is done before God, before the face of God, and should be done for the glory of God. Now, obviously, this is a biblical concept, and I want you to look with me at some passages that I think you're all familiar with already, but turn to Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and I want to show you where this uh, Coram Deo concept comes from. Psalm 139, uh, probably one of the most familiar psalms, the title in my Bible says, God's Omnipresence and Omniscience. And listen to how David describes how God knows everything and how God is everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He knows the words before they even come out of our mouths. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. And so those first six verses really highlight God's omniscience, that he's all-knowing. He knows everything there is about us. And then he goes on to talk about God's omnipresence. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. The New Testament parallel of this could be Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, right, even to the end of the age. Turn over to Proverbs 15, Proverbs 15, 
And here the analogy of God's omniscience and omnipresence takes on a more specific um, tone here. And by the way, the reason why God is omniscient is because he's, the reason why God knows everything is because he's everywhere, right? Those, they, they go together. And the reason why you don't know everything is because you can't be everywhere all at the same time, right? But God can, so he knows everything because he's everywhere. Notice how Solomon says it in Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. By the way, don't miss that last phrase, and the good. Sometimes we, we kind of use this in a negative sense that, you know, with our kids especially, hey, don't forget, God's watching you. God's watching you right? And we make it a negative thing. Well, he's not only watching maybe the bad things that you do, he's also watching the good things that you do. And he, he, he will reward you in the same way he may discipline you for the bad things you do, he will reward you for the good things you do. He sees them all. And he's not one to forget and to make sure that you're recom- recompensed for your deeds, The way the New Testament says this is in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. This is after the writer was talking about how the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God knows our thoughts, he knows even our motives. And then he says this in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his, what? Sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So because God is omniscient, he knows all our thoughts, he knows all of our motives, and because God is omnipresent, he hears and sees all of our words, and all of our actions. And knowing this can be very comforting, can it? To know that God is with you wherever you go. That is a very comforting thought. That he never leaves you or he never forsakes you. I think this was intended, our understanding, God wanted us to know, he revealed to us in his word that he is omniscient and omnipresent to encourage us, to give us comfort and hope. But knowing this can also be very convicting. And I think God also wanted us to be aware that he sees everything and knows everything so that we would always seek to please him and honor him in everything that we say and do and think no matter where we are or who we're with or what we're doing. One of my favorite little books written by J.C. Rowell is called Thoughts for Young Men. Uh, I like everything about this book except for the title. 
I think it could be, should be thoughts for everyone, not just young men. And it's specifically written towards young men and encouraging them in their um, walk with Christ. But tell me if this doesn't apply to everybody. Here's in a chapter titled Special Rules for Young Men. He says, for another thing, resolve never to forget the eye of God. The eye of God. Think of that. Everywhere, in every house, in every field, in every room, in every company, alone or in a crowd, the eye of God is always upon you. He quotes Proverbs 5, 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And there, and they are eyes that read hearts as well as actions, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. He says, endeavor, I beseech you to realize this fact. Remember that you have to deal with an all-seeing God, a God who never slumbers nor sleeps, a God who understands your thoughts afar off and with whom the night shines as the day. You may leave your father's house and go away like the prodigal into a far country and think that there is nobody to watch your conduct, but the eye and ear of God are there before you. You may deceive your parents or employers. You may tell them falsehoods and be one thing before their faces and another behind their backs, but you cannot deceive God. He knows you through and through. He heard what you said as you spoke to people today. He knows what you're thinking of at this minute. He has set your most secret sins in the light of his countenance, and they will one day come out before the world to your shame unless you take heed. How little is this really felt, he says. How many things are done continually which men would never do if they thought they were seen? How many matters are transacted in the chambers of imagination which would never bear the light of day? Yes, men entertain thoughts in private and say words in private and do acts in private which they would be ashamed of and blush to have exposed before the world. The sound of a footstep coming has stopped many a deed of wickedness. A knock at the door has caused many an evil work to be hastily suspended and hurriedly laid aside. But oh, what miserable, driveling folly is all this. There is an all-seeing witness with us wherever we go. Lock the door, draw down the blinds, close the shutters, put out the light. It does not matter. It makes no difference. God is everywhere. You cannot shut him out or prevent his seeing. Well did young Joseph understand This when his master's wife tempted him. There was no one in the house to see them, no human eye to witness against him. But Joseph was one who lived as seeing him that is invisible. How can I do this great wickedness, he said, and sin against God? He says, young man, I ask you to read Psalm 139, which we just read. I advise you to learn it by heart. Make it the test of all your dealings in this world's business. Say to yourself also, do I remember that God sees me? And he concludes this section with this paragraph. Live as in the sight of God. That's Coram Deo. Live in the presence of God or before the face of God. This is what Abraham did. He walked before him. This is what Enoch did. He walked with him. This is what heaven itself will be, the eternal presence of God. Do nothing you would not like God to see. Say nothing you would not like God to hear. Write nothing you would not like God to to read. Go to no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say. Show it to me.
I mean, this is super practical stuff, isn't it? And it applies to so many situations in our lives, like when you businessmen are browsing around in the airport bookstore where no one knows you, complete anonymity, or you're spending the night in a hotel thousands of miles away from your family, or when you parents are pacing the halls in the middle of the night trying to console a colicky newborn, God is there. Or when you young people are out on a date at the movie theater or in your car, God is there. Or when you seniors maybe are lying awake in pain all alone in a hospital room, God is there. Or when any of us is all by ourselves and we're tempted to do something that we know is displeasing or dishonoring to God, God is there. My favorite definition of integrity is who you are when you're all by yourself. Isn't that really the bottom line? Who you are when you're all by yourself. And too often we imitate Moses who, as it says in Exodus chapter 2 verse 12, he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. So we saw this Egyptian harassing one of his fellow Jews and and, and he was filled with anger and, and revenge, and he wanted to kill that guy. And, but before he did that, he, he looked around to make sure nobody would see. What did he forget? The eye of God. You may have experienced this at one time when either your children or your grandchildren or somebody's children uh, were playing hide and seek. And you said, okay, everybody go hide. And one kid went straight into the middle of the living room and closed his eyes. And assumed that because he couldn't see anyone, nobody could see him. And we thought, oh, isn't that cute? But he was the first one that got caught. He was the first one that got found. <laughs> Right? He didn't get it, right? And so we need to stop playing hide-and-seek with God as if he can't see what is going on in our lives. Someone said it this way, no matter who we do not see, we must never forget the one whose presence is unseen, yet more real than any other. This is the idea of Coram Deo. It's the, it's the reality that God is everywhere. That everything we do is before God and everything we do should be for God. That's the reality. That's what's actually happening even though you can't see it. It's reality nonetheless. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a Lutheran minister during the um, days of the Holocaust lived and ministered during Nazi, uh, in the days of Nazi Germany, he wrote a book called Temptation. And he describes temptation in, in, in words that, that obviously he knew of because you couldn't describe temptation this 
vividly without having experienced it yourself. Listen to how he describes temptation. In our members, there's a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Bonhoeffer says he loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. He said the only reality is the devil. And this is the profound statement I read years ago. I've never forgotten it. Satan does not hear in the moment of temptation fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God. That is so true. I don't think I've ever at the moment of temptation said, God, you know, I just really hate you and I want to do this just to spite you. That's never been my motivation. It's just... I was just, just, God just went away for a moment. It's like, it, it didn't matter anymore. He wasn't real. The reality of his omnipresence faded away in my mind, in my heart. And so the more that we grow as a Christian, the more often, or maybe I'll put it this way, the less forgetful we'll be of God. Or, or put, it, put it in this way, the more often we'll think about God. We'll, we'll live with a God consciousness. I remember hearing a, one of my professors in seminary apply this concept of God consciousness or quorum Deo to us as preachers. And he said, you should study God's word as if God was looking over your shoulder as you studied, and you should preach God's word as if God was sitting in the front row listening to you preach. To be that aware of, of God's presence in the process of studying and preaching his word. And I think one of the characteristics of those who are young in the faith is they typically don't think a whole lot about God except when they're at church or maybe when they're having their quiet time. But the rest of the time, they're, they're oblivious to God. In fact, I appreciated the candor of one of the men that is, is um, uh, joining us for Ironman on Friday mornings. And by the way, this is where this all got started in my mind and the heart. Was we, several weeks ago, we talked about this concept of Coram Deo. And, and as we were discussing afterwards and before we prayed, one of the guys just said, you know what? Man, when I, when I wake up in the morning, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to God's word. I have my quiet time. And then, uh, um, then I shut my Bible and I go off to work and I, and I don't think about God until maybe I get home and have an opportunity to spend some time with my family and, and uh, you know, maybe pray with them or do some family devotions. Um, but everywhere in between, my morning and evening times with the Lord, I'm, I'm oblivious to God. And it shows in some, that sometimes the way I interact with my coworkers or I respond or I do things or don't do things and, and, uh, and I just appreciate his honesty. 
That, that's, that's typical, I think, of all of us. And so our goal should be that God is, is, is our first waking thought when, when we come into consciousness in the morning, when that alarm goes off perhaps, or if you're older, you just wake up, right? But that God would be our first conscious thought, and he would also be our last thought, our last conscious thought as we drift into sleep, drift off to sleep, and then and it's not at the very beginning of the day and at the end of the day, but everywhere in between, that we're thinking about God all the time. Why? Because he's there all the time. And one of the tests of where you're at in your relationship with God is how aware you are of his presence. How aware are you of the fact that God is there all the time? And this was where we got into this. This is the book we're reading with the Iron Man, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health by Donald Whitney. And we got to question number four. Are you more sensitive to God's presence? Are you more sensitive to God's presence? And we all admitted, or at least most of us admitted, when we got back together after reading the chapter, that that question alone made us a bit uncomfortable. Being sensitive, right, to God's presence. Maybe it's because we're a bunch of guys, right? You ladies are like, oh yeah, I love this. Because you're in touch with your feelings, right? More. But it, that really wasn't, I'm joking, that's not why we were a bit uh, uncomfortable with this. It was probably because of the, the emotional, mystical ways that so many Christians today seek to experience the nearness and the closeness of God. I think there's a reason why resources like Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby is one of the most popular studies in many churches today. Um, the, the book, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, who was a, a French Catholic friar, like monk, and uh, after he died, some of his followers collected his writings, but it's, it's considered an inspirational classic by many believers, and, and, and while these books contain some helpful principles, I don't want to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say there's absolutely nothing we can learn from these things, but they, I think, if we're not careful, they encourage people to relate to God and attempt to experience God in ways that the Bible never commands or describes. And it's, it's more subjective than um, objective. It's, it's more imaginative than it is prescriptive. Or, you know, would you rather have your relationship with the Lord be based on your imagination or based on his revelation, right? And so do we really need to sit outside and kind of imagine ourselves in the presence of God and, you know, seeing certain things in our imagination, um, which again is very subjective, as opposed to, hey, what, is, what did God say about himself and his word? I want our relationship to be based on that. Not my feelings, not my emotions, which are very unreliable, unreliable gauges of God's presence. And what I mean by that is some of the times in your life when you felt like God was the furthest away, 
he was closer than he'd ever been. It just didn't feel like it. Besides, what does God's presence feel like anyway? I mean, that's a good question. What, was, what does God's presence feel like? And if we went around and said, okay, microphone, what does God's presence feel like to you? What does God's presence feel like? There would be all sorts of different answers. It'd be all very subjective. And, and by the way, how do you know that what you're feeling is God's presence? How do you know that? Unless it's rooted and grounded in the scriptures. And we were so grateful as we waded into this chapter, Whitney was very clear in how he distinguished between feeling like we're in God's presence and knowing we are in God's presence. And that's the bottom line. This is not about feeling that we're in the presence of God. It's knowing that we're in the presence of God. This is what he wrote. How often are you aware of the presence of God? If we take the teaching of the Bible seriously, perception of the presence of God should not be an occasional experience. I do not mean that we should frequently feel a supernatural presence, for that can be extremely unreliable. Nevertheless, it should not be unusual for us, wherever we are, to recognize that God is here. Like, it's often said at, at church that, hey, God is in this place. Well, is God in this place this morning? Is it because we feel his presence in this place, or do we know his presence in this place? Hopefully it's more the latter, right, than the former. God is here. How do I know? Because I can feel him? No, I know God is here. The Bible tells me so. I base my experience with God on the word of God. So when I ask if you are more sensitive to God's presence than before, I'm not asking if you've had some mystical experiences with an atmospheric sense of the Lord's nearness. Rather, I'm inquiring whether you have increasingly paused to recognize the Lord's presence where you are. Have you been delighting your mind in the revealed attributes of the omnipresent Lord? In other words, are you thinking more are you living more Coram Deo? Is, is Coram Deo becoming more a part of your thinking and your living? And Whitney gives some practical steps that we can take to become more aware of the continual presence of God in our lives. And they're pretty obvious. Number one, spend time in God's Word. You want to be in God's presence? No better place than to be right here in, in his word. When you are in his word, you're in his presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mentioned him last week. The great British preacher said this, the more we know it and read it, talking about the Bible, the more it will take us into the presence of God. So if you want to set the Lord always before you, spend much of your time with the regular daily reading of the Bible. So spend time in God's word. Number two, spend time talking to God in prayer. Spend time talking to God in prayer. When we pray, we are in the presence of God. We, it's as if we enter his throne room in heaven, right, with our requests. We come boldly before his throne to receive mercy and grace for our times of need. Those of us who are married, you know 
what it's like to feel distant from your spouse, not because you've been away on a business trip or you have been real busy with a bunch of responsibilities in the home or with your family, but because of a lack of communication. In other words, you just haven't been talking regularly. You haven't been spending time in conversation. And so you could be sitting, you know, on the couch next to each other, but you feel a million miles apart. Been there? Why? Because there's no conversation. So if you want to feel close, if you will, to that person that you married, right, you spend time conversing with them, talking with them. So spend time in God's Word, spend time talking to God in prayer. Thirdly, spend time with God's people. Spend time with God's people. We know that the, the body of Christ is the temple of God. We, we, we read these passages in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, about our body is the temple of the Lord, and we think about it as our physical body, which that's true. But it's used more often in Corinthians there, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, as referring to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Um, chapter 6, or verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's talking about the church as a whole, as a collective body that the, that the, that the Spirit of God dwells amongst us when we're together. So the, the Lord manifests His presence in a unique way in corporate worship as we sing songs, as we read in His Word and we listen to His Word and we take communion and we serve one another. The Lord is, is, is here with us in a very unique and special way. Unlike any other place we, we go, there's something unique about gathering with the, with the body of Christ. So spend time in God's word, spend time talking to God in prayer, spend time with God's people. And then lastly, just regularly remind yourself that God is omnipresent. Just just tell yourself that. Just just I mean, yeah, you know what? I God, I know you're here right now. Just just talk to the Lord. Remind yourself that he is everywhere all the time. Whitney says this, quote, "The Lord is with us even when we don't sense his presence." We must, however, reaffirm what we know to be true, even though we don't feel it to be true. And he talked about God desertions. That was the, something the Puritans talked about, that there are occasions that, that it, it seems like God has deserted us. You just read the Psalms, right? The psalmist was like, hey, Lord, where'd you go? How long is this going ha- to go on like this? Aren't you listening to my prayer? Don't you know? And this is important for us to know because there's times we experience these God desertions and you just need to know that no temptation is overtaking you but that which is common to man. It, it happens. Don't think you're some freak or something that you're the only one that's ever felt this or experienced this. Whitney goes on, God seems so far away, my strongest feelings may say to me. Doesn't he see what's happening? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? Faith in the truth responds, but God is here. He promised he would never leave me or forsake me, whether I sense his presence or not. The truth is, God is here with me as much as at any moment in my life, I will believe the truth. 
He goes on to write this. He says, look for God everywhere and in everything. Say to yourself often, the Lord is here, especially in the ordinary places of life, while sitting at the computer or when at the gas pump, the mall, or the grocery store. Remind yourself that the Lord is present, whether you're in the car, the kitchen, or involved in the most earthy and intimate experiences of life. Reaffirm the fact that God is with you. When you're making your kid's bologna and cheese sandwich before he goes off to to school, right? God is right there in that moment. Spurgeon said it this way, refuse to see anything without seeing God in it. Now you might be sitting here this morning wondering what in the world I'm talking about. Because you rarely, if ever, see God in anything. And if that's true, it may be because of what Augustine said when a man came to him with an idol in his hand, as if to mock the great church father and demanded, here is my God, where is yours? As if, you know, his God was invisible. If you can't show it to me, he must not be real. So Augustine said this, I cannot show you my God, not because there is no God to show, but because you have no eyes to see him. It's impossible for any of us to discern the reality of God with us if Christ is not in us. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And so if you want to live Coram Deo, it starts with coming to Christ, turning from your sin and placing your trust in his sin, sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross as the one and only way that you can be made right with God and truly experience God's presence in your life. It must happen through Christ. For those of you that may have been exposed to Quorum Deo for the first time this morning, hopefully you're seeing that this has profound implications, does it not? I mean, this is a game changer for our lives as Christians. And so I'll close with this. In Psalm 105, verse 4, we are exhorted to seek his face continually. Quorum Deo, live before the face of God. We are to seek his face continually. And may the Lord grant us the heart of David, who said this, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this practical um, instruction that we've received today on, on something that Sounds like maybe it's just part of church history, it's in Latin, but Lord, it really is so biblical and so foundational to our lives as Christians. Lord, would you help us to learn to live Coram Deo before your face and that everything we do um, would be done for you uh, and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.